he was already speaking fluent Greek at the age of six. He's Hungarian. And by the time he get to he got to eight, he was doing differential and integral calculus. So, you know, just your average eight-year-old. Um, My daughter turns eight next week, and I I mean, she can't even, like, catch a ball. Like, I don't understand. Uh, I'm almost 30, and I still can't do integral calculus, bro. <laughs> And welcome to the Crypto Basic Podcast. My name is Michael Lockie, and with today's episode, I'm going to be tackling this very special 101 with Kareem Baruke. Oh, hello. And Brent <laughs> Philbin. Kareem was like, forgot he was recording a podcast there for a second. No, you know what it was, Brent? I was I was really tempted to ask you if you knew why on our last video my, my audio came out mono so that I could fix it now that we just started. Mm, now would be a great uh, time to quality control. Hey, but first, don't forget to check out our other episodes in our 101 series to take a deep dive on a token project or concept from the ground up. Today's discussion is going to be the broad topic of game theory, which has exploded in popularity in recent years. And more specifically, it's caused questions over the last few months amongst our Discord server. The listeners have wanted to know more because we passively mention it in several of our episodes so that's what we're doing today. Gentlemen, are you ready? Hold on. Not the listeners. Let's talk about the specific listener. Mulligan Mike won because he was part of Team Kareem, and he decided that he wanted us to do an episode about game theory. He gave us very little direction, so we're going to do again with this and uh, and hopefully do right by him. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. And congratulations on picking Team Kareem. Again, great choice. Um, I believe that our previous winners, like last month, it was, it was somebody that was on Team Kareem. The month before that, that was somebody that was on Team Kareem. No. Um, Why don't we focus on who is actually won? Like, we have some really high-profile winners so far. Yeah. Yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, they're all part of the team. But game theory, here we go. And by the way, in case you're wondering why um, we may have been requested this episode, and if you... You know, started the podcast maybe like halfway through and didn't listen to our first or second episode Don't. or something like that. Yeah, first of all, good move skipping that. And <laughs> there's a steep we learning do, curve. We there. do want you to download them. If you, don't <laughs> listen to them, but download them, please. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, we were definitely just getting started and learning. But the reason why this might be a relevant topic for us is because all three of us are or have been professional poker players. We have been very involved in games, like, for example, Mike and Brent uh, came to poker through the game of Magic, which also involves, like, a lot of strategy. You know, I, I, I used to be interested in strategy games all the time, so game theory is right up our alley, and even though we're a cryptocurrency podcast, this is a really cool opportunity to just discuss the topic a little bit. And not to mention, game theory is very big in the crypto markets as well, and there's lots of ways that we're going to apply this. It's going to be kind of an interesting discussion. We always love these types of episodes where we get to tackle something a little broader and kind of apply it to the crypto space. So are we ready to get into what actually game theory is? Okay, let's do it. Yeah, all right. So... Um Here's the structure of the show, just so you guys have an idea. When we were trying to figure out how we're going to do this, 
The first half of the show is going to be a little bit more just us going through the history of game theory and how it came to be. A little monologue but that's the discussion just to give you some background. And then as we progress on this show, uh, Brent's going to provide some actual game theory concepts and examples and apply. He told Mike and I that he's got some games planned for us that we don't know what's coming. So that'll be good. But we're going to start with the actual background, right? So the first question is, what is game theory? And you can define it in multiple ways, or maybe it's more correct to say that different definitions focus on different aspects of game theory. So it is the study of mathematical models uh, of conflict and cooperation between rational decision makers. It can also be considered the science of strategy and optimal decision making. And specifically, it's the decision-making of self-interested individuals, right? We're not talking about altruism here. We're just assuming that two individuals, either in a cooperative or competitive environment, have to make certain decisions. And the question is, how can we do mathematical models that tell us what are the best decisions they can make? Yeah, and and what I find so interesting about game theory is that I discovered it, you know, in my mid twenties, and now it's a pretty popular major at a lot of college universities. And this was something that I would have absolutely loved to have gotten in whenever I was in college. It's quite literally the study of other people's decision making, and that sounds incredibly useful to me. Obviously, that's why the strategy games side of things. You know, we have to make decisions based on what we, the resources we have, the information we have. And generally, there is a correct answer. And it's not always intuitive. It's not always easy to come up with. But those right answers, if repeated in your life, will yield better results than just guessing at certain situations. I also want to point out that even though it is one of the definitions of game theory, uh, where it says cooperation between rational decision makers, very often you have to look at game theory from another perspective, which is what happens when not each ra- actor is rational and they don't understand the correct game theory. So there may be a very specific correct strategy that is considered a dominant strategy, but if the person doesn't rationally understand to do that, then it changes the strategy that you have to use. It's very interesting. Yeah, that's 100% right, Brandon. I think a really good example, I was trying to think of what's like the easiest game that we could show optimal strategy for. And the thing that comes to mind is tic-tac-toe. Because <laughs> that's tic-tac-toe, exactly what I was going to suggest. Y- mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a game that most people know how to take so, tic-tac-toe to a tie. But the important thing like to emphasize Brent's example is that if you were playing tic-tac-toe, let's say against a four or five-year-old, you're just teaching them how to play, and you know that they're not that good at the game, you would make moves that you wouldn't make against somebody who clearly knows how to do tic-tac-toe because you know they're going to miss it so you can make a move that's going to give you the win. Whereas against somebody who's playing perfect strategy, you know that you need to anticipate for their correct moves. Often in tic-tac-toe, because there's so few options, it would be considered a game that's solved. It has... It has a certain number of finite solutions. There's only so many options you can go down, and each option is going to yield a certain percentage of win, a certain percentage of tie, and a certain percentage of loss. And it's your job as the rational decision maker to decide what those three numbers combined, how often they end up in your best interest, and you have to make the decision to do what is in your best interest as a rational decision maker. I was going to save this definition for later, but it's an important, now that we just talked about tic-tac-toe and how 
uh, obvious it is sometimes for the for the strategy. We know the Nash equilibrium of tic-tac-toe, and the Nash equilibrium of a game is when the outcome is exactly the same, so there's no incentive to deviate from the strategy. Like, if you are both rationally acting and you know that the other person knows what the correct strategy is, there is no deviation. You will play. Now, the first person can choose which place to go, but you will always, as the second actor, go in a place that is related to the place the first person went. So that that game is solved. We know where the equilibrium is. And I'm not sure how much we'll get into that, but it's a really important term with thinking of game theory and overall. We're definitely going to get into some background of why it's named the Nash Equilibrium. I, I figured that. <laughs> Foreshadowing. <laughs> and that's a great point, Kareem. Why don't we transition into the history? Yeah. So, and just one last quick thing that I wanted to say about game theory is it really is because it's about decision making. It applies in a broad range of subjects. So it was developed and primarily used in economics, but it really has been used in political and geopolitical uh, sciences, in psychology, computer science, and of course, poker. I'm just kidding. Games in general. <laughs> that's how so, that's how he wrote it in the outline. By the way, it's literally written. <laughs> And poker. poker. He did emphasize With, how excited he was to make sure to include that. I, I like even a smiley, smiley face. face. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. not the traditional smiley face. It's the equal sign and parentheses smiley face, which to me is so much happier than a normal smiley that, that's face. That's my preferred it's smiley like, face for sure. It's like that's way like it's, yeah, the two dots and the smiley face always seems like unbalanced to me. You know, like the equal sign parentheses smiley face. I don't know. It's just a better ratio. It makes the head look like more human yeah. oval shaped and not. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. No, I get it. Yeah, complete. exactly. What are your eyes on your lips? <laughs> All right. So let's get into some history. So one of the first things that I wanted to distinguish is we're going to get into when game theory was actually developed as a mathematical science, let's say, when it was defined mathematically. But Obviously, since we're talking about the science of decision-making and strategy, it's been around forever. Humans have been engaging in game theory forever. It's just that maybe they didn't necessarily sit down and describe it in a mathematical so model. So before you get into this example, I was a little bit surprised that we didn't use the concept of war as an example in game theory. However, your example tends to lean that way a little bit so oh i got multiple uh references to war for sure but that is a a major major place where game theory is almost you know it's pretty damn close to solved in my opinion where there's a lot of like pure strategy and pure intentions that that have extremely varying outcomes that need to be analyzed and decided which and obviously I, I know that you kind of like – you made a face when I said it was nearly solved, and I yeah, understand I why. Just, no, I, I completely – I, I guess I, I did exaggerate that point a reasonable bit, but I guess I guess more the discussion is I think it's very easy to have rational discussions about better practices in war amongst rational thinkers. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity – for arguments and discussions where we that's why people can say like I don't agree, agree with this political decision or this war decision or whatever because people are very opinionated on it. Right, right. And and just to be clear because I want to make that differential usually but by solved like in the example you gave with tic tac toe when you said tic tac toe solved is we know exactly what the optimal move is at any time. And there are some very complex games 
that are actually solved. And a good example of that is chess. Even though chess is extremely complex and there's a lot of moves, it's still solved in the sense that if you take any permutation of a chessboard, you could still have a computer give you the optimal move. There's a lot of maybe more complex abstract games that aren't solved yet in the sense that um, you know, we really don't know what the perfect move is, even though we know what the better moves are. Yeah, that makes chess sense. is a fantastic example of this because, you know, if you think about it, every piece has only so many places it can go. There's a limited number of decisions. Now, granted, you start with, I want to say 20 pieces, and obviously some of them have more complex moves than others. So I just find it very interesting that people that are good at chess, how far into the game they can actually think where they can say, if I do this, my opponent only has up to 20 pieces that have up to, you know, 60 places it can land on the board. They are limited to these decisions and all these future decisions are affected by these current decisions. So that's why chess is extremely solved, even though it's an extremely complex game. Correct. So correct. I, I, want, I want to correct you. It's 16 pieces. There, there's 16 pieces on the board. And, I, I wasn't sure. Uh, across, also, yeah. we have a really good friend who is really, really, really good at chess. His name is Brian Goldstein. And he like, I have seen him play chess with somebody for money from the other room. Not like uh, he's on a computer. The chess board is in a room where he can't see it. He's playing the person for money, and he's telling them where to move the pieces. It was actually kind of insane, and that's where, you know, that's, that's a, a like Kareem said, a solved game. So he knows exactly what to do based on what his opponent does, and he doesn't need to see it. He can just be like, boom, do this, do this. So it's, cool. it's pretty cool. So um, the example that I was going to give of, you know, these there's tons of these. So I'm just picking one at random, but I want to give an example of game theory applied long before we had game theory defined as a mathematical science, right? So Cortez, uh, you know, Spanish conquistador, gets to the Americas. He's dealing with the Aztec Empire. And one of the problems that Cortez was facing was that he landed on a shore with probably 1,300 Spanish soldiers. And he's facing an empire with probably an army of 200,000 people. So, of course, even though they have a technological advantage, the big problem from him was that his soldiers had a very real reason, especially when they first landed on the beach, to want to turn back, to be afraid, to want to rout. Cortez's decision was to, as soon as he landed, burn all of his ships. And the game theory thought behind it essentially was that if he eliminated the option for retreat, he basically put his own soldiers in a position where they were forced to just basically give it their all. Like, they your had choice to fight here, for their lives, literally. Exactly. Your choice here is either to, we're going to conquer these people and then we can make ships again, or we are going to die. There is no get back on the ship and route. So by eliminating that decision for his soldiers... He made he put them in a position where it was impossible for them to route. And then on top of that, he did it really publicly so that the entire Aztec scouts could see them. And then that has psychological implications because who would burn their retreat option? You <laughs> I know don't what I'm know saying? how many ships it takes to carry 1,300 Spanish conquistadors, 
But if they arrived and it was a, a limited number of soldiers and they just turned around and just said, here, we're here to stay. I'm going to burn my ships. Yeah, that's very scary. It's very intimidating. They're like, exactly. Uh, and as a matter of fact, they didn't even have to fight that first battle because the Essex were like, uh, we should probably get out of here and think about what's going on. Right. I mean, it's kind of like a modern day equivalent of like a UFO landing on Earth and like, oh, yeah, for them, it definitely right. was. Right. And it's kind of the same experience, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and then but they I turn around the, and laser the, beam their ship, and they're like, "Right, right." Like, imagine I'm if taking like, over Earth, bitch. <laughs> yeah. Imagine like an Independence Day scene where they like beam down a bunch of aliens, and they like literally just blow up their ships, and they just start firing at you, dude. It'd be intimidating. It doesn't matter how many billions of people there are. We're we're done. Like we're toast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's an example of the fact that you know generals in the field, politicians, strategists. Diplomats, they've been using game theory without necessarily defining it as so, game theory. So what I find so interesting about game theory is that some of it is intuitive. Some of it is natural to certain types of thinkers. And for the longest time, I was never able to comprehend what game theory was because it, it is a, it's a scholar field. It's, you know, you can get a degree in it. It's a very complex field at a high level, but the basis is just making good decisions. And, you know, that's been a big part of my life for a long time. Yeah. I want to say it's making good decisions and specifically understanding how your deficient, how your decisions influence the decisions that your either opponent, rival, or teammate is going to make. Right. So here, you know, it's not like Cortez is making a decision and he's being very mindful of how that decision is going to affect the future thought process of his soldiers and the thought process of the Aztecs. Um, all right. So let's get into the. No, go ahead, Mike. Oh, no. So I one more thing that I wanted to add, and I think some people get caught up on the word game. And it's really not limited to any sort of game, but what they're using mostly for the definition of game, in my opinion, is a fixed set of rules within everybody has to act. So that's why this can be applied to politics because politics have politicians that have certain level of terms. So they make, they make different decisions like, uh, like Donald Trump, for example, he'll make completely different decisions for his second term than his first term because if he has one, because that his game is different. He is only playing the game for four years more max. A hundred percent, Mike. As a matter of fact, there is a term known for the time period in a politician that is like the last year before uh, a career where they they can't run for office again, and it's called lame duck. And obviously, a bunch of stuff gets done in the lame duck session because that individual knows, okay, I'm no longer campaigning. It's and almost like they're Trump. not that applies to they're Obama, not held Bush. as accountable for the things that they do and the long term effects that they have and. And that could be positive or negative. It could actually allow them to pursue good things more aggressively, or it could allow them to do shitty things. But, you know, you know unfortunately, the politicians, their motives are generally make money, make my donors happy. So their game is not the way that it, the, the rules of the politics game are so flawed that they have to act in their own best interest most of the time. They don't have to, obviously, but like most people can't yeah, everybody's pass on acting, that opportunity. Yeah. And look, since just because we're always kind of like Trump bashing, I want to give an example just like Clinton. He waited literally to the last day in office to give a pardon to somebody who, if he had pardoned at any other time in his presidency, everybody would have been completely outraged. And then literally on the last day on his way out, he's like, oh yeah, this guy, uh, you're pardoned. Bye. And he no longer has to face the repercussions of that. So that's clearly a game theory decision, you know? All right, so... 
let's get into the actual beginning of game theory. And obviously, there's all kinds of individuals who have played a major role, but I want to focus on three major individuals that I think have affected the field and one in particular who may have significantly affected our lives and our history. So the first one is going to be John von Neumann. And he is credited as basically being the founder of game theory. He wrote a paper in 1928 called On the Theory of Games and of Strategy. And that's where he provided his first, what he called a min-max theorem. And especially in zero-sum games. What is a zero-sum game? A zero-sum game is where the total balance of the game is always zero, which means that if I gain one point my opponent has to lose a point, right? So poker is an example of a zero-sum game because if I win the pot, you lost the pot. An example of a game that is not zero-sum is, let's say, for example, business because we're creating economic activity. So we're actually adding surplus uh, as we interact. So it gets more complicated. But anyway, it was a uh, zero-sum game. Whoa, what just happened to the outline? (laughs) Something caught me off guard, but okay. Um, Brett reads the black highlighted text. Creed reads the red highlighted text. Go on. Oh my god! <laughs> All right, uh, he's he's trying to set up uh, Brent for pronunciation errors. I see what's happening. No, 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 no. Brent pronounces exactly how Brent pronounces, and they're just wonderful to listen to. Yeah. Well, all of these people are European, though, so it might not be that bad. All right. Anyway, so. Von Neumann, in this original text, describes his min-max strategy, or mini-max strategy, I should say, which is the strategy or the pair of strategies that players can take that would minimize the maximum loss. This is like the example of tic-tac-toe, where I know that if I put my my X here, you literally, you're limited on what you could do, and I am limiting my maximum loss. So that's why it's called mini-max. And... This was the original seminal work, but he would go on to develop this a lot further, and he started dealing with games of imperfect information, which are the games that get really complicated. So I just want to take a quick time out to talk about games with perfect information and games with imperfect information. Chess, checkers, and tic-tac-toe are games of perfect information, which means that both players know exactly what's going on on the board. If I move my pawn, you know exactly where I moved my pawn. Poker... One of the reasons why it remains to be one of the games that hasn't been solved is because it's a game of imperfect information. We have shared information, my stack, your stack, and the board, but you don't know what my cards are. I don't know what your cards are. Therefore, we have to start making a bunch of assumptions. It's imperfect information, and those games are obviously much more difficult right, to so model. So just a, a very basic you know, definition of that would be the first time in a poker hand that somebody makes a decision with chips... It, they instantly go from every possible hand. Like think of like a periodic table. That's what our poker charts look like. It's just all the combinations of hands together. And every time they make a decision, if we believe that they're playing close to optimally or their version of optimally, then we have to decide where we start cutting off hands. And every decision they make, hopefully we're able to, to narrow down from all the possible two-card combinations down as narrow as we can into a certain fixed number of possibilities. And then it's our responsibility to use the best math that we can in our heads to decide if their whole cards equal some combination of these possible hands, 
then we got to make decisions based on what they have, whether that means to fold or to, to continue or to raise or whatever we decide. Correct. So, yeah, so uh, Von Neumann, you know, puts out this model in 1928. And, you know, obviously he's creating basically a field from scratch. A ton of people give him feedback on it. Uh, by 1944, it was kind of a cool story. A gentleman named, I guess I got to give it to you, Brent, per Mike's rules. Oscar Morgenstern. Okay, Oscar Morgenstern, yeah. That was an interesting Oscar. No, Morgenstern. No. Morgenstern's right. Yeah, no, I was laughing at Oscar. Oscar. The fucking right, anyway. K. He's got a K in it. Like, you got to pronounce oh, I'm it differently. Sorry. This isn't is Oscar the Grouch. Th- this is Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> Oscar. <laughs> this is paying off dividends already. So, um, anyway, this guy comes up to Von Neumann because he writes a paper on game theory based on what he wrote. His Remember, Von Neumann's work was originally just on two players, and this guy's like, all right, what about this? And Von Neumann reads it over, and he's like, oh, you got to add a lot more stuff. He goes back, he adds more stuff, and then they keep reading, and he's like, oh, you got to talk about this and this and this. All of a sudden, he ends up becoming a co-author. The paper goes from like a three-page paper to a 100-page paper, and then after a year of more debating, it just ends up being a book. So by 1944, he releases Theory of Games and Economic Behavior, and that's also a seminal, seminal work in the field. And we'll just kind of put it there. I wanted to throw in, I'm doing this for, for all three of them, some bonus fun facts about Von Neumann. All right. By the age of six, he could divide two eight-digit numbers in his head. He was already speaking fluent Greek at the age of six. He's Hungarian. And by the time he, get to, he got to eight, he was doing differential and integral calculus. So, you know, just your average eight-year-old. My daughter turns eight next week, and I, I mean, she can't even, like, catch a ball. Like, I don't understand. Uh, I'm almost 30, and I still can't do integral calculus, bro. <laughs> so, um, he was also um, a major contributor to the Manhattan Project, you know, so he's part of the reason why the U.S. government was able to develop the atomic bomb. And then I love this quote. So... Von Neumann was part of a group of Hungarian uh, mathematicians and physicists that all came out during the same generation. Uh, and there was even amongst like all kinds of renowned scientists, uh, very, very famous. And they even asked one of them who won a Nobel Prize in physics. His name, Brian, can you please pronounce his name? Eugene Wagner. Whoa, look at you with the V in the front. Ooh, that, I would not that have That was impressive. All right, I, that would have got me. If I could high-five you right now, I would, Brent. Air five. <laughs> All right, so Eugene Wagner was a the Nobel Prize winning physicist from this group. So imagine like this group of all went to school together, same generation Hungarian scientists that emigrated to the United States. And then during an interview, they asked him, um, hey, like, what do you think accounts for the fact that, you know, there's just like this entire generation of Hungarian physicists that are just like a bunch of geniuses? And his response was, the only genius between us is von Neumann. <laughs> so wow. that's how much of a baller this guy was. To be fair, my life is often about surrounding myself with as many geniuses as I can. And I'm the result of spending a lot of time with a lot of geniuses, despite not having the best, you know, pedigree. So I think this is a great idea. You should always surround yourself with people smarter than you. Yeah. My experiences with geniuses is watching a lot of Rick and Morty. <laughs> uh, um, all right. So 
Our second character in the story of game theory is probably the one that people are most familiar with. And this is John Nash, who was portrayed in the movie A Beautiful Mind by Russell Crowe. So basically, John Nash took Von Neumann's work um, and developed it much further. And his dissertation, uh, when he was getting his PhD, he wrote... um, a paper on non-cooperative games where you're actually looking at adversarial situations, and he developed the Nash equilibrium, that point that Brent was talking about where if both players pursue an optimal strategy, there should be a point, almost like the way a supply and demand curve where they meet is where you get the actual market price in theory. That's kind of what the Nash equilibrium is, but from a strategic perspective. And some fun facts, <laughs> some fun facts about uh, about Mr. Nash. He's got my favorite recommendation letter of all time. When he was applying to Princeton, his professor, who was a well-renowned physicist, wrote a two-sentence recommendation letter. And it said, this is a recommendation for John Nash. He's 19. He's a mathematical genius. Princeton still has that recommendation letter on file. Probably one of the shortest <laughs> recommendation letters. And uh, just kind of to add to the movie no, Just mystique. real quick, like, just real quick. Can't you just visualize this happening? Like, to me, like, that letter says so much about the scene. Like, I, I feel like these scientists, they're, they're often, like, they usually don't have very good handwriting. They're very, like, their brains are very scattered. And, like, if he was approached, it was just, like, Oh, the only thing that I just, the only thing that matters is that this guy's a genius. Fine. Just here. He's like scribbles it on a little piece of paper. This is all they need. Like, I don't know. I yeah. Just, like the scene just, just seems like, so literally, vivid. I think, I think he was like, literally like, there's no conversation to be had here. You got like, this guy's an actual genius. You need to lock him up. And, and Mike, if you love that visual, then you're going to love this little tidbit. Uh, while he was at Princeton, he actually got the nickname from the other students as the Phantom of Fine Hall, because he would be seen in the middle of the night just scribbling equations in random blackboards and trying to figure shit out and stuff. Like, beautiful mind type of, That's like, the level uh, of super genius that I have yet to, to witness. <laughs> yeah. But he was well-liked, and he was even voted most original by his Princeton class. Ooh, most original, that seems, like, automatic. Well-liked, that's usually, like... there's it's not surprising, a, right? Yeah, there's not a ton of, like, people at this level that end up ha- having a ton of social... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just, like, just social rapport, even. Yeah, yeah. And then the last thing I'll say is the movie kind of played up his schizophrenia a little bit more than they should have. He actually didn't have visual hallucinations in case you saw the movie, you know, like he sees spies and all this stuff. It wasn't that type of schizophrenia. He had auditory hallucinations. He also had some uh, delusions and stuff like that. And it was very difficult, obviously. It, it destroyed much of his personal life, but he was able to recover in his later life. But anyway, it was he was, in fact, a, a very unique mind that contributed a lot to the world of game theory. He, he was the one that figured out he was schizophrenic because, like, there was some... I can't remember this. What is the thing that triggered him to this? Like, he Yeah, knew- yeah, yeah. Okay, so I know, I know exactly what you're talking about because I was trying to find a confirmation for this story. But it looks like it's just anachronistic or it was kind of made up. Oh. Because he never had... What you're talking about is the idea that he realized he was schizophrenic because his visions didn't age and everybody else in his life did, right? Oh, that's, yeah, that's right. I'm okay, pretty yeah, sure yeah. that's what you're talking about. Yeah, but 
it it looks like that came from the movie because he didn't have any visual hallucinations. He had audio uh, hallucinations. Correct, correct. All right, and then the last guy. This this name is much less known, but he should get a lot of credit. All right, so. Again, as we discussed, game theory was really developed for economics. And now we're talking about the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. So going into the 60s and after World War II, you know, game theory starts to be taken seriously by the people in positions of power as a tool for decision making from a geopolitical standpoint. And during the Cold War, this was a big deal. Look, going into the Cold War and having just used the atomic bomb during World War II, the Eisenhower administration still looked at nuclear weapons as something that they could just use. It was just a regular weapon. But it was actually a game theorist, Thomas Schelling, who... Oh, sorry. But I mean, I figured he would get that. That's that's a pretty (laughs) good name. (laughs) Um... Thomas Schelling was the one that actually convinced officials that the value of nuclear weapons was more as a deterrent, right? So you have to put yourself in the position of the Cold War mentality, where you have these two massive nuclear powers, and every single move they make is going to be interpreted by the other one in a catastrophic way. The tensions are so high that even defensive moves can be interpreted as aggression. So I'll give you an example. What happens if your nuclear adversary starts building a bunch of fallout shelters? Well, even though that's a defensive maneuver, there's a part of you that's going to be like, well, why are you building a bunch of fallout shelters unless you expect there to be nuclear war soon? So even that is kind of a provocation. And we see this continuous escalation where any false move can lead us to nuclear war. So Thomas Schelling wrote a book um, which was called... I guess I didn't write the name of the book, but anyway, he argued that in order to be able to get others to do what you want, there has to be forms of communication. And specifically, when it comes to adversarial situations, the communication that you will retaliate or that you will punish an aggressive action has to be credible. Otherwise, your opponent can know that you won't go through with your promise of doing a punishment because punishing someone could be costly. So... Maybe an example is like what happened with Putin in Crimea and the United States and Europe. Now, Europe and the United States are obviously would say, listen, if you go into Crimea, there's going to be consequences. But after Putin goes into Crimea, actually having military consequences is very costly for both parties. So you might actually not go through with it. And Putin's analysis that there will probably nothing be done is correct because our hands are tied. So what Thomas Schelling was able to basically show officials is you need to make you need to commit yourself in a way that lets your opponent know that you will be forced to carry out your promise so in the case of the cold war for example there was a small garrison of u.s soldiers that was put in berlin which was mostly soviet territory and those soldiers could not defend berlin if it was attacked they would just die because it was a very small garrison but it meant that an attack on Berlin would involve the death of American soldiers. And the Russians knew that no U.S. president could have a bunch of American soldiers killed and not retaliate. So now all of a sudden you're making the claim, if you go into Berlin, there's going to be a retaliation. It becomes a credible claim. And basically the point that I'm trying to make here is it was Thomas Schelling's influence of game theory and his theories of signaling essentially that kept the Cold War cold. It kept it from escalating because 
It was more about signaling and making the other side know, hey, listen, if you do this, this is going to happen and it's going to be mutually assured destruction. And that's part of the reason why we didn't have a World War III and instead we had a Cold War. So there you go. That's, that's some general background on some of the big, big figures that influenced this space. There's a, there's a term for kind of what happened here, especially at the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's called Brinkism, where uh, the, the, it's one of the topics of game theory. But the quick example is you and your opponent are tied together near the top of a very steep cliff. And in order to win the game, your opponent needs to quit. So how are you going to get your opponent to quit and win the game? But if you both, uh, if you keep like going forever, somebody's going to run out of energy. And if you fall, your opponent falls. So you have to get them to give in. And the correct strategy is to start jumping around like a madman while you still have energy left in you, basically guaranteeing that you're both going to die unless they quit. So then you'll win the game and you both won't die because they're like, well, this guy's insane. I have to jump around. Yeah. Or, yeah. You just made me think of um, probably one of the coolest things. You guys obviously know David Skalansky, right? The the poker player who was also kind of like a theorist. He had such an awesome solution to a game of chicken. So the game of chicken is two cars are driving straight towards each other and whoever veers the car away first loses, right? So it's kind of like a game of quote unquote courage, but at some point, if you don't want to die, somebody's gonna, you know, move the car either left or right. So the question is, how can you win that game? Go and both David, ways, I feel like. Right. That look, there's all kinds of solutions, but David Kalansky's is my favorite. Obviously this is theoretical, not yeah, saying yeah. you can physically do this, but he says the best solution is to tear out the steering wheel and throw it out the window so that your opponent can see it. At that point, that you, you have literally no can't deviate, and he has no choice but to deviate. Otherwise, you will both die, right? You no longer make it a game of, well, will he deviate? You've made it completely you, you, clear that you, you actually can't deviate. create the rules in such a way that you let them know, you signal to them, it's out of my hands at this point. At this it, point, you're dead. Yeah, at this point, if you don't move, we're, we're both dead. So it's it's basically the the same concept here. Yep, that, that's that's exactly the that's exactly the same thing as making the making the Berlin soldiers making public information such that it would be way more damaging to you to not do the obvious thing after that. So you, the U.S. president that says ah that's fine that they died would be absolutely destroyed by his people. So you know that he can't do that. Yeah, the rules of the president are such that. If he lets American soldiers die, there must be retaliation. So that encourages the decisions that were made. Oh, yeah, and dude. And you know what I just thought about, guys? We discussed game theory without necessarily applying it, uh, saying that it was game theory. When we discussed the Canadian sanctions in response to U.S. Yes, sanctions, 100%. where they put all of the pressure in GOP states in order to put pressure on Trump. That was totally game theory. Yep. You yep. know, uh, we're also going to kind of talk about that in a little bit. Kind of. Like trade wars in a vacuum-ish. So I, I believe at this part of the episode, we're supposed to kind of shift into a little bit more of some games. I believe Brent's going to be more the host the rest of the way, and Kareem and I are going to play. It's going to be like David and Goliath, but that has nothing to do with our weight. That means our intelligence is flip-flopped. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to give it like my best turns. shot. By the way, it, Turns was one of the most fun episodes we had. I it's like not that. as It's not as game showy as that, but what I want to do is Boo. provide some... Practical examples where Mike and Kareem give their opinions on 
what they should do and what the outcomes may or may not be. So the first one, the first thing I want to look at is it's the it's almost the core of all of game theory. Almost is the prisoner's dilemma, uh, and the prisoner's dilemma at its core is two people have to make a choice in secret to either cooperate or cheat with each other. And I'll I'll give a couple of, of examples of this, but um, e- the best outcome is for both players to cooperate with each other. So it, it in um let let's say let's let's give example number one, which is it's it might hit close to home with some of you. I thought this was a really cool example. Whether or not you should say I love you to your partner is interestingly enough a prisoner's dilemma. All right. So here are the possible outcomes. If you both say, I love you, this is a very positive outcome for the entire group and relationship as a whole. Everybody's happy. If you say, I love you, and your partner doesn't, then you feel you you have rejection. And if you say you don't love them and they say they do, then they feel rejected. If you both Say that you don't, or if you not not that you. I'm sorry, you're neglecting to say it. Not saying I don't love you. You're saying that you're. They're saying I love you. You're saying nothing. So if you both say nothing, then you have a net zero effect. Nothing changes. So in the event that you say it and they don't, uh, you say it and they say nothing, it is a negative because the other person will feel rejected. Right. So even though the best outcome is for both people to say I love you and cooperate. In this example, it it actually works out in your favor to never say it because then you ref, you never have a net negative result, and your your magnitude of negativity versus the magnitude of positivity is higher. So it makes sense to cheat. That the the cheat and cooperate are those examples there. I'm going to give a more uh, concrete example here in a second, and then we're going to expand on it. But the basis of the prisoner's dilemma is that even though the best outcome is for people to cooperate, it is the correct play to cheat. So we're going to play the theoretical game, and I am stealing this from ncase.me slash trust. Oh, go ahead, Green. Brent, time out. Um, without having to go into depth at all, but just so people know why it got the name, you want to just let them know real quick why it's called the prisoner's dilemma. Just the fact that that was, <laughs> okay. that was the first. So analysis. yeah, the, the the I guess that's important. The prisoner's dilemma is is called that because the theory is, um, let's say you're you're talking with the police and you and your friend have been separated into two rooms, and if one of you cooperates with the police, you are given less of a sentence. If you both cooperate. Let's say it's uh, let's say you get nothing. Let's say you get or well, I call it one. No, I call it nothing. Zero call five nothing. ten is the yeah. number you use. Zero five ten. Yeah, and and then if you both cooperate, then you both get five years in prison. And if one of you cooperates and the other doesn't, it's zero and ten. So if you rat out your partner, then no, it it, it shouldn't work out to be. It's, uh, I, I think, think the, the ratio needs to be one to four. No, listen, listen, listen. It's just zero five ten, right? Where like. If you rat out your partner and they don't say anything, you get zero years, they get 10 years. If they rat you out, you're going to get 10 years, they get zero years. If you both rat each other out, you both get five years. So the situation that the prisoner is put in is that if they stay quiet, 
they run the risk of getting 10 years. But as long as they rat the other person out, worst case scenario, five years because they rat you out too. Or you could get super lucky. They didn't say anything and you walk out zero. So the optimal strategy for the prisoner is to rat out the person. And you can also look at it at this from the perspective of the police, basically saying, ah, you can structure the incentives in such a way that you're incentivizing them to rat people out. Yep. So that is that that's the basis of the prisoner's dilemma, and that can be applied to, to a lot of different things. So we're gonna play uh, we're gonna play a prisoner's dilemma game now that we know that stealing is the correct option, right? So and and again, it's not it. it here's what we're gonna do. Here's the, this is the basis that this game is based on. Now it's not a hundred percent exact the prisoner's dilemma, but the game is Kareem and Mike each have, or actually I'm not gonna do it like that. Uh, it, every person has the ability to do one of two things. They can put a coin in to a machine or not put a coin into a machine. If you put the coin into the machine, the other person receives three coins. If you do not put the coin into the machine, the other person does not receive three coins. So the outcomes are if you put a coin into the machine and they put a coin into the machine, you both get three coins and you're both positive too. Uh, So in this scenario, Mike and Kareem, do you do you cheat or do you cooperate? I'm a little confused. Is there any value to cheating? Oh, you don't lose a coin. You're not yeah, minus it's, one. It's it's oh, plus okay. two minus one. I thought it was zero three at first two, and then I gotcha, didn't understand. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, yeah, I would put in a coin. Okay, Kareem Kareem puts in the coin. Mike, would you put in the coin or would you cheat? I would put in a coin. Okay, in my opinion, because the incentives are structured in a way that there's much more positive by coin in than negative by coin out. So if you decide you've got, you guys have both decided to cooperate. So again, I'm using ncase.me slash trust. Um, in this, Was this case, that game, is this that game that we played? Uh, we never, Remember I mean, I don't know if game? you ever, that's what this is. I don't know if you went there and did it. You but, did, you did send this to me like a month ago, right? Yeah. I, I think neither one oh, of this, you did it. So it's interesting. I, I did it. I definitely oh, did okay. it. I didn't. It was a long time. I, ago. It was so really, it, really. So, real quick, this there's a game on a website. Brent sent me the link. It did take about thirty minutes. However, the game was really well designed. It was just like a web based game where you just you're basically multiple choice answering questions. But it's like on the topic of game theory. If you're interested in this episode, I highly recommend clicking that link. Yeah, we're we're going through a, a few of the clicks in this. Now, we're not going to be able to present everything, but Mike and Kareem have just both decided to, that they should cooperate in this instance. Now. When you cooperate, and you're, Kareem just found out he's at a disadvantage. Yeah. Uh, well, whatever. Mike chose wrong too. So your um, your outcome for cooperating is plus two coins if you both cooperate. It is uh, if you cooperate and your opponent cheats, then you get a negative one. If you yeah, if you don't cooperate, if you cheat and your opponent cheats, you get zero. And if you cheat and your opponent cooperates, you get plus three. So your expected outcome is plus one point five on the on the cheat side, and the cooperate you can only get two or negative one, so it's plus one is your expected value. So it is correct to cheat, right? So now, can I mention meta or no, or should I just would I that kind of ruin it? Uh, well, we're we're getting there, um, but. Remember, no, in like, every like current meta. No, no, no. Don't worry. Hold on. Metagame is the okay, next okay, thing. Okay, okay. <laughs> All right. So, so in both instances, it is correct for you to to cheat. But 
what happens if you run it back? So in a vacuum, if you only get to make this decision one time, then you have to you have to cheat, correct? Because cheating creates the best net positive for you. But now what happens if you put this in, you see what ha- you see what happens and now you have to make the same decision again with the same person knowing what their previous decision was. Now what do you do? So you're going to play somewhere between three. You know what? Let's just, we're going to go through, we're going to go through this. Um, do you guys have paper in front of you? I Any do. chance? All right. So let's play, let's play a quick, 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 quick version of this game where we play four rounds. All right. So Mike and Kareem, write down your choice. Are you going to cheat or cooperate? And remember, we have this video on our Patreon, but you're just going to have to, assuming we have a Patreon. We don't have it yet, but we're going to. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the, we only put the flagships on YouTube, but there is going to be a video for this. But Mike and Kareem are going to write down their answers, show me, and then I'm going to tell you what they did. All right. So, uh, is it the same game? It's the exact same game. You're just choosing to put a coin in, and that is cooperate, or you're choosing to not put a coin in, and that is to cheat. So, and and now we're doing it with the knowledge that we both put a coin in before. Uh, no, ignore that. Just we're starting just from scratch. Start from scratch. Oh, starting from scratch. You have your first game. What have you each chosen to do? And show me the answer. Kareem has cooperated. Mike has cheated. So Mike is now plus three and Kareem is minus one. So now let's do it again and see what happens. Kareem. Be plus two, not plus three. You didn't put anything I used in. a coin. Oh, I didn't put it in. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So choose what you're going to do for the second game now. All right. Mike has chosen to cheat. Kareem has chosen to cooperate. Mike is now plus six. Kareem is minus two. All right, we're going to the third version of the game. Now what have you chosen to do? Mike has chosen to cheat, and Kareem has chosen to cheat. So Kareem is still at negative two, and Mike is still at plus six. And let's do it one more time and see what happens. Mike has chosen to cheat. And Kareem has chosen to cheat. So Mike ends this game at plus six, Kareem minus two. And Kareem has now become a victim of his altruism on the first couple tries of the game. Mike decided to play the optimal way. And Kareem decided to uh, allow Mike to play in the uh, optimal way, even though he thought maybe it wouldn't work out that way. But remember, this game is generating a net positive overall in most instances so we have a net positive of plus four overall on the game that we just played so let's uh yeah of the, gonna... of the, to more specifically of the rules of the game because they were designed in a certain way the combined coins between kareem and i has actually increased by four now that's like really important for this entire concept right so interestingly enough even though the correct play is to cheat, it may not be the correct play in the long run because of what is called a revenge uh, situation. So Kareem here was cooperating. He cooperated two times in a row, and then he was sick of you stealing, and he quit cooperating. So think about that on like a, a global trade perspective. Um, if you are all cooperating all the time, everybody's probably creating value. But... If somebody decides to be a little bit shady, now you have a scenario 
where trust is broken. So you have created a spot where because the other person decided to cheat this time, you might decide to react in such a way that they, if the other person has decided to cheat, you're now going to react probably with cheating. Now, Kareem gave it one extra Kareem gave it one he, extra he, he held out one more time to test me yes. and then decided that I was a certain type of character in the game. So he played by the rules. Yes. So that is where it is interesting that this breaks that this breaks down because uh, and, and, and back to a previous example that we had spoken on. This is an example of limited information. Kareem does know who I am as a person, but that's hard to translate into my decisions within a game. And he probably decided that he likes me. I'm a good guy. We've been friends for a long time. We're going to play. <laughs> we're going to play fairly. And uh, I, I don't think we played unfairly. Just to, just to clarify my thought yeah, process. Yeah, yeah. No, just to clarify my thought process is that our cooperative value, if we cooperate on every street, is plus eight. Whereas if we don't help each other out, we're going to be less. So I basically gave enough cooperations. You gave opportunity a fair shot. To get that ball rolling. Cooperation right. a fair shot. Right. 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 So in this game, we actually really, even though cheat, 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 cheat is the correct way to make the most uh, value, the make, to make the most value out of the game as a whole is to cooperate. So we've noticed that. So there's a couple of different ways that this plays out. Now, I'm going to, if we continue to go into this very, very long, then we'll see that that cheating most of the time ends up being the correct move. So you need to change the game such that the incentives to cheat are not strong. Right. And so the purpose of this game, when I played this game, it was adjusting the rules of the game to remove cheating as the primary like motivation and and that's a really interesting that's why I like this so much it gave me a lot of perspective on ways to mutually benefit and I also I did play this game like a month and a half ago two months ago I don't remember much of what's going on so I'm not like gonna cheat in this game going forward but I I do remember the concepts were very clear right so cream floating the game up now <laughs> what what am I um no, no you're no, good no, no, you're no. good you're good Oh yeah, no, I heard a just I thought maybe there was a Discord. So it if when you run these permutations and you change the game just a little bit and you change some things about your opponents, there is a way that eventually cooperating becomes the the correct and dominant strategy. It takes a very long time. We don't have enough time in the podcast to go over it, but check ncase.me slash trust and it really will show you what happens with international trade, and you'll see that. Canada is playing correctly. When given the type of player that Trump has decided to become by starting the trade war and putting tariffs for no reason, they're responding with their own cheating. So what's happening is they are the kind of player that is uh, the copycat. When their opponent does something, they on the next trial, they do exactly what their opponent previously did. So as long as their opponent continues to cheat, they will continue to cheat, and nobody makes any money. Because if we go back to Mike and Kareem's game, and after the first time Mike cheated, Kareem cheated the rest of the game, the game would have netted only a net of plus two instead of plus four. So Kareem can continue to cooperate at his own expense, 
or he can shut it down and stop anything from happening and wait until you've decided to cooperate. Now, if you then. So what you're saying is, so what you're saying is, in theory, game theory speaking, if our president is going to continue to cheat on every decision, that's bad for everybody. But if we had somebody in power that had better incentives and preferred cooperating, that might be better for the whole. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. As cool. So if if we were to release those tariffs and then Canada were then to copycat us and also continue to cooperate, we would now be in a spot where we're cooperate, cooperate. And if let's let's say let's say that uh, you were doing the responsive move. So Kareem cooperated the first time and you stole the first time and and you both were copycatting each other. That would be also a net negative. So Kareem was doing the thing that he thinks is best, which is he's going to cooperate and hope that because he cooperated, you are going to see that and make that so, same choice. Right. It, so if you, in this I example, if, re- recap, I, I, I'm going to finish this. All right. So in this, in our example, if you stole the first time Kareem cooperated, but then you saw him cooperate and he gave you one more chance, which is what he did. Then the net of the game would have actually still been plus eight. Because he was minus one, you were plus three, which is plus two. Then if you, or I'm sorry, not plus eight, uh, plus, uh, plus four, eight, 12, plus 13, or plus 14, sorry, <laughs> plus 14. So in the example where he cooperated, you stole, you made, there was plus two total there, but you made plus three. Now you both cooperate. Now that's plus four total, plus four, plus four. So if you had cooperated once you saw that Kareem cooperated as a whole, there would have been more coins generated for everybody. So, and if I had agreed to cooperate the second time, that would be me signaling to Kareem, okay, maybe it is best if we all work together. So I, yeah. I would actually argue Kareem probably played better than I did on this round. Yes. Maybe not. You ended up with a higher expected value. Ah, but the results don't always dictate what the decisions <laughs> lead. Yep. So it's an interesting uh, exercise in game theory, and we have to be talking about this a lot when we're talking about uh, the incentives of miners not to put on fa- false blocks onto the onto the. I know we haven't talked a lot about crypto in this episode, but we're working on it. Um, we have to talk about the incentives for a small group of proof of, proof of stake people to cooperate, because as long as everybody's cooperating and using their coin, theoretically the uh, the value increases for everyone. So, uh, but there, if we generate negative, in, if we don't generate negative incentives for not co- cooperating, people might just steal. Uh, Brian, just felt like this was an opportunity to give another example of that revenge effect and also show how much more complex game theory is when you start dealing with human psychology. Because another version of this exercise that has been done a lot is you give You get two people in a room and you give one of them $10 and you say to that person, all right, you can decide how to split up these $10 between yourself and the other person. You could do five, five, six, four, three, two, whatever, whatever you want. Right. But, but, but then the other person gets to either accept or reject your offer. If they accept, you both walk away with whatever the split was. And if they reject the offer, neither one of you gets anything. So here's the situation. And this is why game theory is a little bit different when you're talking about just, let's say, for example, chess, where the moves are limited. If I say, okay, I'm going to take $9 and I'm going to give Mike $1, 
realistically, from a quote-unquote game theory standpoint, Mike has the last move in the game. He can no longer affect my decision-making. I already decided to split it nine and one. So his choice is really, do I make a dollar or do I not make a dollar? Therefore, he is he should always accept because not accepting gives him zero and accepting gives him one. But it has been shown time and time and time again that if the person who splits the money does like a 9-1 or an 8-2 split, the other person would rather not take the money in order to deal what they believe is a justice or deal pain to the other person. So, and conversely, the people who split it rarely ever split it 9-1. They'll usually maybe do like a 6-4 type of thing, and then it makes sense to accept it. So the human psychological aspects of anger, revenge, fairness, justice, all of those things are going to influence the mathematical decision, which makes game theory in the realm of human psychology very, very complex. So I actually watched a video that discussed the topic that you just covered there, but they had an interesting wrinkle and a really well put um, real life use case for this. He said, imagine the same game, except the the party that can either accept or decline doesn't know how much they started with. So like it could be $3, it could be $10, it could be $20. And, he's, and basically what he said is, this is the real the real game theory situation in a business where most of the employees in a business do not understand fully how much money is coming in, how much the expenses are, where everything is. So like employees kind of use their cognitive biases, wink, wink, to pick and choose from the information available what they believe is going on as a whole within the company. So the game becomes really interesting when I don't know how many you have, but I believe this was more of a negotiating situation. It's where if I knew that your number was somewhere between one and 20 and I had to accept your offer or decline, or we could negotiate back and forth. I mean, I honestly forget how this kind of ended, but I thought that was a really interesting use case and a really interesting discussion to have. Yeah. There, there's an interesting, uh, Negotiation is a very interesting game. Like we, we, I was going to mention that a little bit later when we're talking about game theory in real life and how it's applied. Negotiation is a, one of the primary ways people will often uh, study game theory. Uh, it's very interesting. One other thing that I want to talk about is metagame. Now we, it's this, it's this theory in our minds that there is a um, a right play and a wrong play and that kind of thing, right? So. In the, in the instance where there was cooperation and non-cooperation, figuring out how your opponent was going to react to that stuff and how your opponents as a whole would react is figuring out the metagame. So if you're playing against people who are always going to steal all the time, you should never, ever cooperate. If you're playing against people who will always cooperate all the time, you should always steal. So there's a different play based on the groups of people that you're playing with and how that happens. Now, I want to explain that in a very practical way. I have, a, I have a, a little bit better definition, in my opinion, before you get into an example. In my opinion, what metagame is and is and how it applies to my life is it's some of the limited information that I have. Now, f- what that could mean for an example, I'll just give a couple quick examples for me. In poker, any hands that I've played against people before 
factor into my future decisions. Now, anybody can play any hand any way at any time, but I have to limit their decision-making process based on the information that I have available. I disagree that that is metagame at all. That's one person. Metagame is the group as a whole. So metagame would be more like most players in a particular poker room are playing a loose aggressive strategy versus a tight aggressive strategy. And then you can narrow down your choices based on what the individual is doing. But when you go in with a strategy without knowing that, you're going in thinking most people are going to be doing X thing. So that is, that's more specific to metagame. And what you're talking about is narrowing down the decisions past that and getting past the metagame making a uh, decision. All right. So just for the sake of argument, I'll throw my hat in the ring. Metagame refers to anything that goes beyond the rule set of the game itself. So both would be examples. Like if I the can game get on board that definition for sure. If, if the game of poker has specific bet raising and then specific hand ranges, a hand history with a specific individual is metagame because it goes beyond the rules of the game. It's talking about history. And also, Brent, the general strategies employed by most players is also metagame because it's talking about uh, the psychology of the players or the strategy. It goes beyond the structure of the game itself. Uh, I guess that makes sense. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to illustrate metagame with another pseudo game that the two of you are going to play. Kind of not you're not really gonna play it, but you're gonna tell me what Yay. you would think, right? Uh, we're playing paper, games. rock, scissors. We're gonna we're gonna modify paper, rock, scissors a little bit. All right. Okay, no, stop. Stop. Who I've never heard it called that ever. It's rock, paper, scissors. What do you say? Paper, rock, scissors. Who says that? You go paper, rock, scissors, shoot, right? No, it's rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Wow, this is fascinating because number one, one, Kareem is 100% right. It is rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Number two, I didn't even catch it in live action. My brain just knew what you were talking about. My brain <laughs> no, was like, oh, he's talking about RPS, obviously. Okay, yeah, that's like saying, oh, let's play show Rambo. Like, you'd be like, what? <laughs> it's Rochambeau or rock, paper, scissors. Yeah, Brent, that's <laughs> it's rock, paper, scissors. This big, is not debatable. Biggest mistake you've made this episode so far, Brent. <laughs> Maybe anyway, the show. we're changing the Maybe game ever. so it doesn't matter. We're changing it to something else. I can call it what I want. In fact, we're going to call this Paper, Rock, Scissors because there's other, well, there's other thing. So we're going to add Ooh, a, more metagame. We're going to add a fourth option to our Paper, Rock, Scissors game. We're going to add right. Cherry Bomb. And we're also going to change a couple Ooh. rules. So we're adding Cherry Bomb to the game. Cherry Bomb okay. beats everything except Scissors. And we're also going to modify Scissors. Scissors now, instead of beating paper, ties with paper because these are very dull scissors. Scissors tie paper? Scissors tie paper and Cherry Bomb beats rock and it beats uh, it beats paper, but it loses to scissors. So scissors, it equals paper, but it beats Cherry Bomb? Yes. So scissors has two ties and beats, and, and beats Cherry Bomb and one loss where it loses to rock. Or two, I'm sorry. Yeah, where it loses to rock. So scissors has two ties. It loses to rock and it um, beats cherry bomb. We're also going to change one more rule. If you throw the same, uh, the, the same item instead of throwing again, there is a you're, we're playing in front of a giant screen and the screen at the same time that you throw will flip a coin and whichever one of you the coin lands on will be the winner in the event of a tie. So there's a coin flip instead of a tie. So there are no ties. Of each turn? Yes. There's no ties. So oh, there, okay. the ties exist, but they're 50-50. There is a winner if you both throw the same thing. So you will always be playing best of three, and you will never be playing like seven shots in a row. 
So what is the correct play given the example that I just gave you? So wait, are we just saying it out loud or writing something? Um, I'm still working on mine. If you don't want to give your answer yet, that's, you can wait. Yeah, you could write it down and then and then you can show me and then I'll I'll ask you each to explain why that's the best. Are we play. just are we just guessing our first turn play? No, uh, just like in yeah in a in a vacuum, what should you be throwing the most often? Which one of these which one of these things should you be throwing? All right, I have my answer. Um, For those that are watching this, this is uh, very interesting because um, Mike and Kareem are like super in thought. They're both like. You can see the gears turning, and it's, really, it reminds it's an me easy of like answer. the the, Jep- the thirty second Jeopardy thing is kind of what's going on here. Yeah, I should have brought in a Jeopardy. Right, I, have an, sound. I, have, I have an answer. I have an answer too. All right, what's the best play? Scissors and Cherry Bomb. Is All it? right, so Mike, why did you pick Scissors as the best play? All right, because of the four possible outcomes. Uh, only one of them were a loss. So the four outcomes are loss. Um, wait, I did something wrong. Never mind. All right. So Kareem got it right. The so correct here's, play is here's a mistake. Bomb. Here's a mistake in my math. And just obviously that what's so hard about thinking on the fly is that one little mistake in your math can throw everything off. Uh, the wrinkle of the tie, I was counting that not as break even. I was counting that as half a win for some reason. And not half a loss, so obviously that right. threw my math off. You didn't, you I, didn't bring your basketball shoes. I get it. Right, exactly. I, <laughs> I roll, I rolled my ankle. So, uh, in figuring out that mistake, I would have chosen. Let's see, two wins, to two losses, um, and one to one. I'll give my explanation. It might have not been the right logic. One loss. There's nothing with two losses. Yeah, so, 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 cherry oh, yeah, bomb are, has, um, cherry bomb has. One loss out, of, so it's the loss is zero point two five per turn, and the win is uh zero point five per turn. So you win at an increased rate in cherry bomb, right? Of your four options, Kareem, what was your cherry bomb logic? Yeah, so the logic was that uh, cherry bomb was the only one that beat two things, and even though we could start playing a game of like, well, if he knows I'm going to throw cherry bomb, he's going to do this and this, and eventually what you end up with is it's still a mixed strategy. But ultimately, the underlying mathematical reality is that Cherry Bomb is beating two things and everything else isn't. So assuming we're both going to participate in a mixed strategy, I just want to statistically throw the one that wins twice as often more often. Right. So Cherry Bomb is the very clear best strategy because it's the only one with with two wins and one loss. It's the very clear first pick best strategy because of the rules of the game. And now other factors may influence future decisions. So let me now kind of move everybody to explain how metagame would affect these paper, rock, scissors tournaments that not rock, paper, scissors, because I made the game. So it's paper, rock, scissors and how these tournaments would go. The tournaments in the beginning would just be a bunch of random people because it would be a bunch of people throwing cherry bomb and getting, uh, and getting a 50, 50 win loss. Right? So you cherry bomb, cherry bomb, cherry bomb, cherry bomb, 50, 50, 50, 50. So but if you, the, by picking cherry bomb, it, it's a coin flip. Yeah, it makes everything completely random. But every now and then you're going to start to see tournaments where somebody just starts to win more often. Now, everybody's kind of groupthink here is going to be that this person is lucky. Like, oh, my God, this person like runs so good. They must win all their coin flips. They're super lucky. How is this happening? But then you end up playing against the person and every now and then they throw scissors and you're like, what the hell? 
what kind of idiot would throw scissors, right? Like scissors is strictly inferior to throwing uh to throwing a cherry bomb. Scissors can lose one, win one, but it ties on two. That's dumb. Why would you ever throw scissors? But that person continues to be up there and win the tournaments. So they're taking advantage of metagame. They know that the correct play is to throw cherry bomb. So they're taking advantage of the fact that everybody is thinking on level one and throwing cherry bomb and throwing a suboptimal play, which is scissors, to change that up. And now against the correct opponents, different decisions matter. Right. So now what actually is happening is scissors may very well be the correct play in most of these tournaments until people start to notice that scissors is the correct play in most of these tournaments. Now, I a, a really obvious great example for Brent and I is the game Magic the Gathering. And most people probably haven't played that game. So what I will kind of try to broaden that, any game with a deck of cards like Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, any strategy games like Clash Royale is a great example. Uh, any strategy game with with deck building of some sort, Hearthstone's another great example. There, because there's now, instead of four rules to the game, there's thousands of combinations or mi- billions of combinations of whatever type of deck you bring. What your opponents are bringing to the table should influence what you bring to the table and what they expect you to bring to the table also should affect what they bring to the table. Yeah, I think another example that maybe a couple of people might be uh, familiar with, you can even see it in professional sports. And I know that this will probably be an opportunity for Brent to make fun of me because I don't really watch football anymore. But when I did watch it... Here's an example from 10 years ago. (laughs) No, but when I did watch it, you could see like a certain evolution for the game, right? Where like, for example, there was a period of time where the meta in football was really strong, powerful running games with, you know, big offensive linemen and big linebackers. And the meta game eventually started changing with a lot of... We're talking about American football, by the way, for our international listeners. American football, right. (laughs) With a lot of you know fast receivers, a lot of, we started seeing a lot more shotgun formations. The field started opening up, and then we saw another meta game change initiated by Bill Belichick when he started implementing a lot of these hybrid tight end formations that allowed you to run in case you had a. I have a better football. I have a really good football example. There's two of them. One. Um, remember when the Dolphins started running the Wildcat out of nowhere and no team was prepared to deal with a, a running back that was getting dealt the, handed the ball directly, which creates an extra defender on the field, which creates havoc for a defense. Now, um, the other mobile one quarterbacks I, also did the, the very next one. I was going to say the evolution of the mobile quarterback. And there's a ton of examples of this. Vince Young, Michael Vick is an anomaly in this conversation, but Colin Kaepernick, a lot of these guys, they have things fantastic beginnings of their careers but guess what the defense gets paid a lot of money to figure out the exact moves that you make and once a multi-million dollar defensive coordinator trains his army of of you know prisoners that are trying to kill you then those guys are going to learn very quickly what routes you cut, how you cut, what your field division's like. And that's why the mobile quarterback does not have the longevity that traditional quarterbacks have. Yep, I I agree with that. And when we said prisoners, we meant in the sense of the prisoner's dilemma, not anything else to do with the with prisoners. All right. Anyway, I want to keep going past met. That was a description of metagame. And I want to keep going past that and 
Uh, let's go to some examples in crypto. I, we've done this whole crypto podcast and we've talked about almost no crypto. So I want to just talk about a few things where game theory clearly influences cryptocurrency. Crypto trading. When we talked about zero-sum games before, when we were talking about poker being a zero-sum game, we neglected to mention that trading. Did Or did we say that? We might have said this. I don't know. Cryptocurrency trading that, but- is definitely a zero-sum game. You make a trade. You either are on the po- the good end or the bad end of that trade. I have an argument to make here. Uh, I, the reason I don't believe it's a zero-sum game for trading is because there is often a middle uh, person involved in exchange, for example, or miners, for example, where there's actually pieces of this being taken out of the equation. And if the if you're only looking at it from the perspective of the two trading parties, then it is a zero-sum game or it's not a zero sum game. However, because there's multiple parties involved, the exchange is part of the ecosystem. The Bitcoins themselves, the eventual 21 million of them is always going to be in circulation. So it is zero sum overall, but I think that there's elements of non-zero sum involved. Well, I would also agree that it might not be zero sum because the market is fluctuating in total value. So if, for example, stock trading was just perfectly zero sum, we wouldn't see that everybody who invested in the stock market over a prolonged period of time makes I'm not talking about stock investing or crypto investing. I'm talking about crypto trading, specifically a trade as a winner and a loser. Now, there's also a tiny bit of rake. There's a tiny bit of rake in poker, but we're ignoring that for the definition of zero sum game. But you either end up with the asset that is going that goes up or the asset that goes down in relation to Let's the other asset. Let's assume an over-the-counter trade. Let's assume yeah. that Brent has Bitcoin that I would like to buy and Brent's choosing to sell it to me. Then it's significantly closer to the definition of zero sum in that regard. Yeah. Now we're not talking we're not talking about buying and holding. We're talking about the actual trade itself. Either Bitcoin or Ethereum will have greater value than the other in the future. And that is the person who won or lo- won or lost on the trade. Now they may both still go up in value, and in all and in in totality, an investment market or a cryptocurrency market is going to generate more value as it goes. But the trade itself is zero sum. Um, tragedy of the commons is something that we haven't even talked about. Oh my god! Oh my god! How have we not talked about the tragedy of the commons? I uh, you want to take it, or you- Kareem? No, this is you. All right, so the tragedy of the commons is essentially the prisoner's dilemma taken to a wide maximum audience. So if you remember when we were discussing the prisoner's dilemma, the incentive was to cheat. So now I'm going to give you a tragedy of the commons. Let's say that you have a village that has um, grassland and they all have their cattle. Now, in order, if anybody lets the cattle eat too much of the grass, you could have everything die and everybody loses out. So everybody in the village agrees, hey, each person only let your cattle graze for, let's say, two hours a day. And as long as everybody sticks to it, the grassland is going to stay there. Here's the problem. For any one individual, forget about the group, but for any one individual, it makes sense to cheat because the grassland is only going to die if everybody cheats or if a lot of people cheat. But if everybody's following the rules and then you get to cheat just a little bit, then your cattle's going to get a little fatter. You're going to make a little bit more money. And just because you cheat, it doesn't mean that the grassland is going to die, right? Here's the sad part. And this is why it's called a tragedy. 
because it is correct, quote unquote, mathematically for everybody to cheat. A lot of people do cheat and they do, in fact, ruin the grassland. So, you know, and, and we see this in in all kinds of fields where everybody cheats a little bit. And actually, if you ever get a chance to look up uh, Dan Ariely, he's an economist that focuses on behavioral economics. He's got tons of lectures and talks on YouTube. He's really interesting. But one of the things that he talks about is that when it comes to cheating, most people think that the majority of the cheating comes from a few group of people who cheat a lot. And almost all of the research has shown that actually almost everybody cheats a little bit. And that's the tragedy of the commons. Everybody cheats a little bit to benefit themselves and they end up hurting the greater group. I mean, the, the ultimate reason for that is that everybody's their own most important you know, person, everybody's family is significantly more important than other people's families because it's ours. It's, you know, it's something we want to protect. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the largest scale example that we've ever seen of the tragedy of the commons is the current problem that we have with pollution and general global warming, where it makes sense for every single country, especially developing countries. They should be focusing on using fossil fuel energy because it's an efficient and cheap form of energy. And if you're trying to industrialize and to create a middle class, you should absolutely go that route. Like, why are you going to go try to with other forms of energy, right? But as a whole, we have basically been destroying and destabilizing the environment that we depend on. So that is the tragedy of the commons at a very large scale. Yep. And as far as it applies to crypto, um, we're talking about a couple of different spots like voting for DAOs, for instance. Voting is in general, any voting. Now, there's a lot of voting in crypto, but any voting is also a common strategy if there's no incentive for you to vote. So yeah, uh, the U.S. elections. There is absolute zero incentive for anybody to go out and cast a vote other than your civic duty. Your your vote also has a cannot really matter as an individual vote. So people won't go vote. <laughs> no, okay, Kareem. Kareem, how do you roll his eyes? We're not, we're not, no, we're not going to have this debate. We're not going to have this. It's Kareem, okay. rolled, Kareem rolled his eyes. It is very demonstrable that a single vote cannot matter. It, it literally can't happen. Now, votes as a whole matter. But if you're in, in the example, and we're talking U.S. politics, in the example that you're voting for the president of the United States, you cast the last vote that's cast on that day. Your state is the last state to report, and your vote puts your state into the category of the president that or the per, the candidate that will end up winning the presidency because of your one vote in your one state that creates that. You still don't have a vote that matters because it's too close, and in that case, the Supreme Court will make the decision, not you. Not your vote. So your vote never matters in U.S. politics. But on as a whole, as a group, your vote matters. I just want to point out that that is also the same logic as saying no dollar that you invest matters because that dollar is never going to make a difference. But the totality of your dollars invested matter. So what, the well, wait, matter. what do you mean? No, no, no. The, they have like to be it, thought of as a block. No, if you, if you invest one dollar, it'll eventually be worth more than a dollar. It won't make a difference to your life, though. So that's the... I, I, that is similar. Like the a one dollar invested literally doesn't matter if that's all you ever invest. Sure, but if you use that logic to decide not to invest dollars, it's counterintuitive. Right, but you only have one vote. Yeah, kind of. So perfect. if if I could choose to invest a hundred million votes, then maybe I would do that. But I I only get to do one. So so okay. From a game theory perspective, then just hypothetically, like how do you improve? Just as the topic of the U.S. voting system, like what? Uh, Insert Kareem like, oh, well, you should stop cheating and you should stop doing this, that. Obviously, those things aside, 
how do you improve the system? I, I don't even have any good ideas. Offer an incentive. Well, for, for starters, for starters, we should probably have either Rob Viglioni or Charles Hoskinson on to tell us about this liquid democracy system because they're trying to incentivize voting. Let's yes. hear what they have to say. That'll be pretty cool. Um, but anyway, no, Mike, I, I would not say let's just not cheat. I'm all about creating the right incentives. It's just an interesting question of what that incentive is. Maybe, maybe it's a tax break or something like that. Who knows? I, I will tell a quick little anecdote. Uh, so I was more or less disinterested in this U.S. election because we had very poor choices. And Oh, my God. I, this is ridiculous. The, the wait, most stereotypical incentive actually got Brent to vote. Like so, and and, and in the end, think my of a vote, funny joke. My vote not not only didn't matter, but the uh, but I voted for one of the not primary two candidates. So I knew that the person I was casting a vote for couldn't win. But what got me to vote? It's the first election I voted in. What what happened? Wasn't my civic duty? It wasn't anything like that. I found out that the voting precinct that was three blocks away from me was giving away red velvet donuts. True story, Mike. True so, story. He called me and he's like. Towards the, end of the, day? On the day of the election, he's like, "Hey, they're giving away donuts like, at the voting like booth." Are those like Norman Love so, donuts or anything? I've never heard of those. Are they special donuts? No, red velvet. Just red the velvet. It's just oh, like, the flavor. flavor. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah well, yeah. nah. Never mind. But hey, as side note, also, Brent, you didn't just vote for president. You also voted for a couple of propositions, no, some of which passed. Yes, you I, did. No, I didn't. I remember. I did not. Brent, you called me and asked me about it. You voted for the proposition oh, wait, that I legalized for medical one, marijuana in there Florida. There was one that I understood. The only one that I understood, I voted for that. Yes. Okay. So you did. That's right. I, I forgot. I remember right. specifically All being right. like, cool wow, story, bro. <laughs> while I was filling it out, I'm like, I bet people just check off like whatever their party is and they have no idea what's going on here. But um, oh but yeah, goodness. I was All I right. was talking about the president of the United States voting. And well, anyway, similarly, the people that are making those ballots write the questions in a game theory fashion to elicit the types of votes that they want to get. If they want to incentivize a no vote, then they're going to word it in such a way that seems negative or seem, and this is like the incentive of, you know, having a centralized pe person making decisions and designing things in this fashion. So voting in crypto, if you're voting for a system that gives you no incentive to vote other than you get to vote, you may find that there isn't a lot of participation in voting for those particular strings. If you get, now, like like Charles and Rob are trying to create that liquid democracy, if there is an incentive to go cast your vote, then maybe you'll actually do the research and cast a correct vote, or at least the vote that you think is correct, rather than just throwing a vote. But it may be that the incentive just throws a vote out there and nobody actually does the research. They just want to get the incentive. So it's interesting. I don't know. I feel like the right way to do this is to incentivize somebody, but that's why... We're trusting this to the experts at IOHK to figure out which way is the right way and which way isn't. Because do, do you offer people like a fifty dollars tax break on their taxes? Like I have no that idea. Would like how cost do you a lot this? of money, but right something something anything to get to get them out to vote. And but the, but again, the thing is, if there I are just countries go where get, you get penalized for not voting, by the way, yes, it could be a negative uh, you know incentive what? for you not know voting. What? Yeah, negative incentive. I'm way more interested in a negative incentive than a positive. I'm fine with any sort of negative incentive. Yeah. So I, I'm all right with positive or negative incentive. And I had done enough research to know that the, the candidate that I voted for, his name was Gary Johnson. He never had a chance, but he was most aligned with my political ideals. Kareem, you voted for uh, the, the other chick, right? The, that was most aligned with your political ideals, but had no chance. 
I can't remember her name, but I know she thought Wi-Fi was killing babies. <laughs> and and Gary Johnson didn't know like what he didn't know like the name of like a world leader, right? There was something oh, really was, stupid yeah, yeah. that anyway, our candidates were not good. They were just better than than the two idiots that we had to choose from. So um anyway, the the end result is maybe if I go out and just vote because there's red velvet donut and I pick Donald Trump without knowing anything, that could have been bad overall too. So I don't know. The selfish miner is another one where if you're mining, it is in your best interest to lie about the mining and try to create a double spend. But there are negative incentives in a lot of the coins for when that happens. So that's why the game theory there has decided to be a thing. Fcoin, Fcoin scam that we talked about last Monday has developed an incentive system where the proper way to play is to trade amongst yourself and wash trade and create this giant volume of trading for no reason. They that that was a compl- that was like if you looked at that scenario and you said, "Hey, I wonder what the correct play is," you would find level 1 thinking is do this. Just so just out of curiosity and obviously we've covered this and you guys recorded that without me. I did go back and listen and it was really entertaining episode. Is it possible that they just didn't consider all the outcomes of their decisions when they designed this. No, because it was level one. The incentives they were creating. It was level one. It wasn't like, they, like it was an unintended side effect. It, it's like if you looked at the information, you're like, yes, everybody's going to do this. <sighs> that like Mike, did they he, intend to make it happen that way? I think so, but maybe yeah, it, they, maybe they didn't know. I don't know. They're offering a scenario where you can't lose. Anytime you have a guarantee, guaranteed return on investment, you're probably getting hustled by somebody who's trying to hustle you. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, I would. I yeah. I like to add two on here. Um, something like even proof of stake is a game theory concept because think about it. We're saying that if your vote is proportional to your stake, it means that the more votes you have, the more you're vested in the in in the cryptocurrency itself so if you do something that damages the value of the cryptocurrency that's really going to hurt you so a really good example of this is the dash masternode layer the people that get to vote on this it was structured in such a way that they have to have a ton of dash locked up in the dash network to make sure that they're incentivized to make the decisions that benefit the network that's a game theory structure and even bitcoin itself the way that it reaches consensus the way that it ignores you know what we call this satoshi consensus where we ignore um or we accept the longest block that these are all game theory um concepts so you know, it's really like, it's not just about optimal decision-making that we can use game theory. I think that this should have been one of the themes for the episode. Yes, we as individuals can use game theory to make optimal decisions, but also we can use game theory to create scenarios that yield positive um, incentives to the participants to incentivize cooperation, kind of like the game that Brent was setting up. Even in the scenario where every single miner tries to double spend their own transactions... That all disappears because they can't keep winning every single block every time. So the longest proof, even in Game Theory Optimal, where you're trying to cheat the system, you cannot do so. So that's why this is all that the crypto is all super interesting. Um, I'm going to finally end this with just a few real life examples uh, that we've mentioned a lot of them, but I just wrote a few down here that I'm going to go over because we talked about negotiation. We don't need to go over that again. Uh, but I do like... David Sklansky, we mentioned him earlier in the episode, and this was, story was originally told to me by Kareem. And it was the basically game theory optimal way of buying a new car. And oh, it was, I love that. 
So if you want to buy a car that every, say, Ford dealer is going to have, so you want to buy a, I don't know if they make the Taurus anymore, but you want to buy a Ford Taurus with like the normal package of options, right? The correct way to get the best price on the car is to go to the first Ford dealership. Yeah, if it has to be brand new, it has to be the exact same as another car at another Ford dealership. But you go to the first Ford dealership and you say, I would like to offer you $10,000 for this car. And the sticker price is, I don't know, 25000 or whatever. And you say to the person, I know you're not going to accept this offer, and that's fine. But I'm going to offer you $10,000 in cash for this car. And then if you decline my offer, I'm going to go to the other Ford dealership and offer them $10,500 for the same car. So they're going to tell you no. And then you go to the other Ford dealership. You explain to them the exact same thing. And they're going to tell you, no, we can't take it for 10500 So you drive your ass back to the first Ford dealership. Now, you're going back and forth, and this is a lot of back and forth, but you're going to reach a point where you're going to get to the point where the first Ford dealership knows that the second one can accept your offer because they know how much the car costs. Mm. And they'll say, well, we can't accept that, but we'll do this. And you say, no, you can either accept this or I'm going over there and I'm going to do this. And you actually get the car for literally the minimum possible. Because they can't let you go to the other dealership because they know they'll accept. They know the breaking point. Right. That's a really interesting story. Is to put them in competition with each other and let them know that that's what they're competing against. I don't know how low you can go, but I know that that dealership does know. And either you accept And that's interesting. If we go back earlier in the episode, we discussed how important communication was in negotiation. Correct. So by creating a game where you're restricting the ability of two parties to communicate, you get to be the, you get to make the rules. That's a really, really, I never thought of it that way, but that's super cool. Yeah. Yep. So that was Skolansky, a cool. Skolansky is great when it comes to game theory. Honestly. Yeah. That was a cool, interesting implementation of that. Um, in soccer, when you're doing penalty kicks, it's basically paper, rock, scissors. I mean, there's a lot of physicality involved, but break it down. It's two players simultaneous action with three choices: left, middle, right. And when you're a goalkeeper, you have to make a decision of which way you're jumping. Interestingly enough, Freakonomics did a study on this, and it's often correct to stay in the middle. Because it, it, there's so much negative um, social they can pressure, miss kick, right? Well, yeah, they it, they can mess up, and it gives you like a window in the middle to catch some of the left and right. But no goalkeepers do it because if you just stand there, it looks like you didn't try. So there's a lot of social pressure to go flying to through the air in one direction or the other. So it, it's right. interesting. I was really and good at penalty if, kicks when I was a goalkeeper because there's a metagame there. Right-footed kickers tend to kick to the right, but I never thought about the middle ground of not moving. Yeah, and Brent, even one of these things is to think about it from a statistical perspective. It doesn't mean we always go middle. And of course, sometimes the goalie is going to stay in the middle. But if in theory, they should go 33% left, 33% right, and 33% middle, just because of that social pressure, there's a good chance that the goalie's going... 45% to the left, yeah. 45% to the right, and only 10% to the middle. So you're getting a lot of expected value or extra equity by just going to the middle because like in our Rochambeau game, they're not doing it at the right proportions. Yep. So that's a, another super interesting real life example. Which time you go to a store like and, and parking at that store. So you're going to a store and you're deciding where to park. It, think about this in your daily life. You always have an instinct to go dur- down a certain parking lane. 
And that parking lane will always have more cars I than the other ones. Guarantee the three of us have put more brain power into optimizing our driving than most people have. Yes. Like probably than anybody listening to this combined. We I I am obsessive about what lane I'm in, exactly the distance of every car around me, the exact lane that I drive down. I'm super aware of like where stop signs are versus street lights. I try to optimize the number of rights I make instead of lefts in, in you know, in neutral situations. I, I, it's just how I am. I don't know any other way to be. Speaking of rights I versus lefts and driving, like an elderly Japanese woman. Yeah, yeah. Kareem's car is interesting. <laughs> if you ever see it, it's like he's hit a lot of things. Um, <laughs> the, the interesting you mentioned making a right. UPS ended up basically forbidding its drivers from making lefts at one point, or at least planning their routes such that they didn't make lefts and saved an obnoxious amount of money on fuel. I don't remember how much it was, but it was like, holy crap, it's something you have to look up. I didn't look it up, but I know it and happened. And time. I can only imagine how much time they saved as well. Yeah, it was completely there are plenty of scenarios. And, and then, you know, that, that, that that's that's all that I really came up with, and only off the top of my head. Everything is game theory. Like you can literally break down everything and and talk about how game theory is related to it. And if we it did it involves decision making. Hold right. on a second. Correct. If it involves. So, it's super interesting. We're up on an hour and forty minutes. I don't know how much this we're going to cut <laughs> out, but uh, maybe we not that much. Probably still going to be like an hour and much. a half. Yeah. So <laughs> this is one of those things that I think should just be included in like high school education, but like clearly won't be like, yeah. I felt very like I am intuitively a good decision maker, a, a rational decision maker, but like I could have been so much more polished for the world. And I, and I knew a lot of people that were extremely unpolished and, you know, suffered because of this. And I believe so, that's going to wrap it up. Anything else that we want to touch on real quick, guys? No, no I think thanks, Mulligan Mike, for creating this. Yeah, this was completely this was non-crypto appreciate it, guys. Yeah, so I, I don't want to make any promises, but I guess I, I am interested. Like, I know we've had Rob on the show twice, so he might be uh, sick of Crypto Basic already, but I'll, I'll ask him if he wants to do, like, a specifically game theory-themed uh, talk. That would be awesome to hear. Like, uh, yeah, I, clearly. Or yeah. maybe even just somebody on his team that would rather do it. Yeah, is, yeah. Like or, anybody anybody on his team that's focusing on the liquid democracy or anything like that would be great. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to go in there, Discord right now, and poker. Unless you'd rather wait. No, we'll, we'll wait. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll do this <laughs> off, off air. Uh, I don't want to get tipped any verge while I'm there. Um, <laughs> All right, guys, I think that's going to do it. This was fun. I had a real great time. For the Crypto Basic Podcast, my name is Mike. I was here with Brent and Kareem. Thanks again for tuning in. All right, the members of the Crypto Basic Podcast are not game theory advisors. They couldn't get out of a prisoner's dilemma if their lives depended on it. We're also not financial advisors. Financial advisors.